Thank you for listening to the Warning Podcast. If you like the conversation you hear today, please consider subscribing to the Warning Premium. It's our membership program that offers members immediate access to the conversation you're about to hear ad-free. You'll also get additional content, including monthly Ask Me Anything sessions, weekly civics discussions on topics relevant to today, and exclusive conversations. Please sign up at thewarning.supercast.com. That's the warning, T-H-E-W-A-R-N-I-N-G dot supercast.com. Thewarning.supercast.com or at the link in the show notes section below. Well, I'm really pleased today to be able to be joined by Keith Olbermann, a broadcasting legend uh, in sports journalism, national commentary, uh, somebody known to everybody. Hope to have a wide-ranging conversation with him uh, today, but with no further ado, welcome Keith o Olbermann. How are you, Keith? Apparently, I'm legendary. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, you are legendary. <laughs> you are. Uh, you are a three-time winner of an award named for Edward R. Morrow. Yeah, an important figure in this country's history, to say the least. But thinking about Donald Trump sitting down with Sean Hannity, how do you evaluate it in this moment? Trying to contextualize it to explain it. I process it from this perspective. We're we're quite a ways down the river from yeah. where we were eight years ago. Yeah. Um, if I had knocked you in the head in 2016 and you woke up yesterday and you watched that, um, what is it that we're seeing? Yeah. And importantly, how should it be covered? Because because I think we're seeing something very specific. Yeah. It isn't talked about directly. How do you see it? Well, I think you asked what Murrow's reaction would be. I think his reaction would have been, I told you so. <laughs> um, the, uh, that, that, there was a part of that generation in the 50s that understood because they had seen something that's, that where television started in particular, and that's what we're talking about. That television, uh, obviously, you can extend it to streaming and online, anything with a camera. This is... It broadly included in the concept of television. Um, if you've seen the movie Network, uh, the great uh, the great film about what yeah, happens when a newscaster either goes crazy or gets the word of God implanted in his head and begins to almost speak in biblical tongues, the, it was considered one of the great prophecies, a uh, film from about 1976, and it hinged on one thing happening. The news divisions of the television networks used to be sacrosanct in terms of business. If they made some money, that was great. If they lost $30 million a year, that was great. That was the price that the people who ran ABC, CBS, and NBC paid for the right to broadcast uh, Beverly Hillbillies and Captain Kangaroo and the other shows that might not be up to the intellectual level of See It Now or 60 Minutes or anything on the news. And the, the movie network hinges on the idea that at some point the networks would say, this is crazy. We're not going to lose $300 million over 10 years so we can have a reporter standing by at all times at the Vatican. It makes no sense. And, and the day that they made that decision, then every decision after that would be monetarily based and they would simply try to 
get the largest audience. And I know it's kind of difficult to explain to people that there was once once television that was based on not getting the largest audience, that you were mm-hmm. you were fulfilling some sort of public service. But the moment that was turned off, this would follow. And the reason these guys who, who were involved in the making of that picture understood that that was going to happen was that was really the way television began. Edward R. Murrow did two things. He did great broadcasts about the news and documentaries, and he challenged Joseph McCarthy in 1954. And he also did a weekly chat show in which they would put a camera in somebody's house and with meticulous rehearsal, move one of these giant, you know, car-sized cameras throughout somebody's home while they all mentioned, you know, things that they, they had rehearsed as cues for which camera to pick and what they were going to talk about. Totally rehearsed, totally non-journalistic, and yet it was pre- presented as if it were journalism. And Walter Cronkite, who is used as often as Murrow is now as this avatar for a different world in news, used to do a show called uh, You Are There, in which CBS newscasters and actors combined to recreate historical events, you know, like Julius Caesar is stabbed. You are there. And there's some guy playing Julius Caesar and standing next to him is Walter Cronkite with a microphone going, how do you feel after being stabbed 51 times by a Roman Senate colleagues? And acting and making up the news. And within the context of that, everybody said, okay, we know this is not real. He's not being... But the point was that was where news started on television, and a lot of people pulled it back and went, "We we shouldn't do that anymore. We should keep Walter Cronkite over here. We should not have him doing the news with actors." It was like Shatner singing, it, yeah, the same variety. Yeah, it was, <laughs> but as if you were saying, "Right here is here is seventeen time award winner right. uh, Emmy Award winner William Shatner, who's the greatest singer of all time." <laughs> These guys who produced that were the one, same, some of the same people who made the movie network. And they weren't predicting the future. They were just reminding us of what the past was like. And that's what this has become. It is now, and I mean, I was involved in decisions like this at MSNBC, and I was involved in them at ESPN, and I tried as often as I could to push back against them and not make them the priority. But the idea that you were a success based on how many dollars you brought in would have been alien to Edward R. Murrow. And it is, you know, the natural extrapolation from that point at which you said television news is going to be like anything else on television. It's about selling refrigerators or whatever. Um, the, the end result of that is an interview that's not an interview by a journalist who's not a journalist, um, who is presenting himself as in some way asking questions when in fact he's just feeding cues to to a former president who's trying to seek the office again. I mean, it is it is back to the original propaganda uh, possibilities that that were in the device the moment the first one was switched on in the 1930s, and that's that's the problem because they used to self-regulate and self-censorship when it came to television was a good thing. And I would have much rather worked in a television world where nine tenths of what I said would not have been allowed. <laughs> Just like you can't say that because now we got to put on some other idiot to say the exact opposite. And that that's just going to, you know, nobody's going to watch that at all. And we're going to lose 60 million a year instead of 30 million a year. That was a much better system than what we have now. Do you, do you think do you think that Donald Trump is being covered appropriately in this moment? No, not at all. I think any 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 attempt and every major news organization, the actual ones, including the ones that position themselves as liberal, 
um, or let's say this, they don't fight that designation. Washington Post will say, well, we're not, we're not one way or the other, but if you call them, you know, if you said the Washington Post is conservative, there would be 16 op-eds in the Washington Post explaining why they're not conservative. Right. Uh, there would not be so many op-eds if you called the Washington Post liberal. They object less to that term. Um, even then, have this, have had it beaten into their heads for 25 years now uh, by the ghost of Roger Ailes. Fair and balanced, fair and balanced, fair and balanced until this meaningless catchphrase, which does not represent either truth nor reality, becomes the goal. It's like, well, sure, uh, Trump uh, Trump talked about death and destruction, but uh, here's why that could be a bad thing for Joe Biden. And 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 there is in every article there is some contextualization that these news organizations have trained generations of reporters and editors to look for as a kind of fig leaf for whatever it is they want to say, rather than just saying, okay, every time in American history that journalism has actually contributed to something that saved the country, helped the country, helped the country grow, organized and unified the the country in time of war, any time that this has happened in any form of journalism, any medium whatsoever, there's always been some realization that there are two different things at play. There are facts, and then there is truth, and these are two different things entirely. And the the uh, the desire to go for facts instead of truth is is the problem with Trump. You know, Trump says whatever. That's a fact. He said it. Um, is it true? Probably not. If you say just the one thing and you do not say the other, you have failed. And 99% of the people covering Trump and every other politician fails to do that second part, which is to me, you know, a, a, a capital offense within journalism. You should not be allowed to be a journalist if you do not see the difference between a bunch of facts and truth, because facts is, is stenography. You know, he said it. Well, it's true that he said it. The, the, right. New, York, the New York Post operates on this. Uh, insiders say, and then they'll have somebody say a quote. The quote has been said probably by somebody to whom they have read the quote. And therefore, it is a fact that someone said the quote about what's going on at CNN, what's going on at the New York Daily News, what's going on at the Los Angeles Times, what's going on in Broadway, whatever it is. They have created the quote. Somebody has read it aloud. Therefore, insiders have said that doesn't make it true. It just means it's a fact. Now, now you've talked about every type of consideration that you can think of that goes into that story to try to justify, well, he didn't mean that, except for one possibility, which is never in any of the stories, which is taking him literally. Maybe he means what he says. Yeah. Well, why is it that that there seems to be a reluctance to say mm. that he's calling for political violence in the United States? Well, it's difficult for me to address that other than theoretically, because I always say that. <laughs> I always point that as out. As do I. Yeah. And I yeah. and I think it's as clear as day without 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 hyperbole. Yeah. Um, uh, the problem is this. This is the other situation that, that is inherited from the good old days, particularly of television journalism. But I think it's true generally of Washington and political reporters in every field. It seems to me they only understand about three or four templates for stories. If it has never happened before, it can never happen. 
You know, I, I used to I used to say, well, again, particularly with Trump, I had a long sit down when I was still talking to him with Chuck Todd. We had dinner in 2016 and I explained to him what was going on in the Trump campaign because it was clear to me he didn't get it and what the appeal was and what those words meant. And he was just uh, the, the the condescension and the, well, that would be treason, wouldn't it? This kind of just sort of um, laughing me out of the out of the room. Uh, attempt was really indicative of my point. They, the Washington reporters are trained to recognize a couple of stories and nothing else. And it can't be that there would be somebody who would rise to the presidency of the United States with absolutely no loyalty or adherence to the concept of democracy whatsoever, nor to the concept of uh, nonviolence, nor to the concept of the peaceful transfer of power. And yet this man has done all of these things and they still do not perceive that as the primary descriptive of, of who he is or what he represents. And and it's it, it there's still to some degree, I criticize the, the current president for the same thing. When you get to that job, you are not getting to that job, president of the United States or host of Meet the Press or host of This Week or whatever else in politics that there might be or editor of the latest leading you know, online uh, news organization from Washington, you're not existing in the year 2023. This gets back to what we were talking about, about Bill White and Phil Rizzuto and, and Frank Messer from, this, from the 70s and 80s. You join that job, and for you, you're sitting next to Frank Messer, you know, and Bill White and your, whosoever role you're taking. For you, as you step in in 2023, there's a part of you that's still 1978. Because that's when you saw it, and that's what you understand, and that's what you're trying to achieve. And of course, Joe Biden goes in, and he's not—he doesn't want to deal with the fact that democracy has been, you know, seriously wounded and is still bleeding the day he takes office. He wants to go and, and fix the economic problems and the and the and the, the misfit connections in society, and he wants to deal with those. And of course, he does because he wants to be John F. Kennedy. He's going into, into, into it's, for him, it's 1963 or 1961. And to this day, the people who are getting in prominent roles in television are trying to be the persons that they admired in 1990 or 1980 or in 2000, whenever it was. And, and they will not see that there are new realities and there are, are things that don't fit the templates that were true for Walter Cronkite. And that's that's the essence of the problem. This can't there's still a lot of this can't be happening in involved in the coverage, particularly of Trump and, and others. I think there's a fundamental issue. Uh, first, when you talk about Walter Cronkite, I mean, even Walter Cronkite wasn't Walter Cronkite when you when you apply the standards. Right. Yeah. That 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 people apply today. Um, but look, this, this moment in time, I, I think fundamentally you have a former president of the United States who, if he could, would he kill to achieve political power? Absolutely. Um, would he abuse police powers and lock up political opponents? For sure. Would he torture them if he could? Would he make them disappear? There's no restraints. And I, and I think there's a total absence of coverage around the psychology of who Donald Trump is, who is supporting this. Uh, who are his chief lieutenants, what are people getting out of it. There's a total dearth of explanation about the danger, about the rhetoric, and inevitably, 
where all of this leads. Um, I predicted in September of 2020 that there would be violence because there's no other end for somebody who denies the outcome of the election. Um, You know, both Nicole Wallace and I were deeply involved in 2004 through the night, you know, on the phone with the John Kerry campaign. Um, arranging the call ultimately to the president. And you understand this is a serious moment. And I'm the person who placed the phone call from John McCain to Barack Obama. You have an appreciation that you're playing this small role in the continuity of the peaceful transition of power that's gone on uninterrupted in the country since 1797 through Great Depression, uh, through civil war. This This is how it works. Um, and that that be upended because of this man's ego and then metastasize to where it has gotten to that we have pushing on, um, pushing on the ceiling of a critical mass of people that have a total indifference mm-hmm. to the continuity of our fundamental way of life uh, that is our birthright and is and has been given to all of us through immeasurable and profound sacrifice. It's quite a thing to behold at a at a cosmic level, but but secondarily at a at a fact level that nobody seems to be able to extrapolate and to say that we just had an event where six people are killed in a school by another AR-15, former president of the United States stewing grievance over here, yeah. violence over here. I very much believe the fuse is lit and we have a predictable event ahead, which is some act of political violence, whether it be small to medium or catastrophic in total numbers. But people will sit on television sets and they will openly wonder how could there have been an act of political violence triggered by an adherent of somebody who then all of a sudden denies that, in fact, they were inciting political violence. It's a remarkable level of almost societal or television gaslighting. I don't, I don't know what to call it even. Well, I mean, How should we think about it? Well, I, I, I'll go back to what I said and expand upon it a little bit. Everybody who steps in front of a camera or sits down to write something that is going to be read by a lot of people on these topics is to some degree doing a thousand impersonations. And the, somebody said, uh, well, you're, you're the original and novel sportscaster. I went, no, I'm not. Everything that I have done has been done by somebody previously. I'm just doing it in a different recipe with different combinations. And it's, I think this is reminiscent because even in saying that, it wasn't original. James Thurber said something like that in 1927. And he was just explaining all the writers that he had read from the 1880s onwards from whom he stole something. And the, there's a positive to that, which is the, 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 the redesigning the recipe makes for new broadcasters, writers, whatever, reporters, as, as every generation goes through the American experience. But the, the, the problem with it is, is that, again, you are doing impressions of people who lived in a world in which none of what you just said was true. And therefore, when you do your impression, when I sit and do the you know one one hundredth of my work which is actually reminiscent of Murrow or one one hundredth that is actually rem- reminiscent of Phil Rizzuto, 
these men did not ever deal with a Donald Trump or anybody else who was willing to overthrow the form of government which has ruled this country since the revolution. And therefore, you, you, have to, you have to make that part up for yourself. And I don't know how many people covering the news are capable of making that up for themselves. And you, you like to think that putting all the components, all the wisdom together uh, is, is going to be enough to let somebody respond to an entirely new situation in American history, and yet clearly isn't. And I think people are, are often in a bubble of their own education. Uh, it, what I benefited from was being in sports where there's a final score, and that's it. And you, there is a final. It is not a 60 to 12 NFL final score means the team with 60 points, not only one, but one huge. And there's no debate about that. And in politics, you can argue all you want and say, well, it's a moral victory here and it's this, that and the other thing. What I was able to do, I think, was to be able to apply areas of of non-politics to politics and the people who enter it and have always been covering politics don't really see and don't really have at hand any other set of values and particularly don't don't understand maybe the works of fiction i am you know my political training is as much uh the manchurian candidate as it is the making of the president 1960. i mean you know i i i, I literally did a, a a class with with my that history professor i mentioned in high school just about the making of the president. At the same time, I was watching the Manchurian candidate, putting that in the back of my head. Like, what would happen if that, what would that look like in real life? And I, and I just, I have to say this since you mentioned it, I wrote a, an email to the new chairman of NBC in January of 2020, predicting what January of 2021 would look like. And it was, you know, four options, none of which were Trump loses and leaves. I just, our, our best case scenario is that it's such a decisive victory that when he tries to hold office by some illegal means, uh, he will not find anybody to support him because it will not. It will be both uh, both humiliating and likely to result in their arrest if they try to defend him. And unfortunately, it was close enough that he was able to drag people down that path with him. Let and, me let yeah. me be clear. Let yeah. me be clear about. I don't. I don't think Chris Christie deserves any any credit um, at all. He's in New Hampshire, um, doing the uh, groundwork. Uh, you know, thinking obviously uh, that he's going to run for president, which I think is ridiculous. But he did say something that is that is that is deeply true. Yeah. Um. And it's and it's this. He just said like this isn't going to end well. Yeah. Right. This is an end is a disaster. And that just struck me. And just that that, of course, that's true. Right. There's a Trump's not going to have a quiet end wherever wherever this goes. I'd, I'd bet a lot of money on that. Where. Yeah. So. So my so my question is, wh where does this how does this end? Do you do, uh, you, do you think do you think he makes it through and is, and is the nominee of the party again of the Republican Party? Uh, again, I would love to delude myself and, and give you a flat no to that, because that's actually not only is that the best case scenario for the Republican Party and the nation, but it actually is a double positive, because I have no doubt that if he doesn't get the Republican nomination, he will run in some way for some period of time. He might drop out, but he'll run as a third party candidate because he cannot 
he cannot allow himself to lose. To lose is to admit you are not uh, God on earth, which is at the heart of what he believes, what they've all believed. What, what all the tyrants and would-be tyrants have believed is that they are one of, at, at, you know, the most generous interpretation is they're one of a series of superhuman people, uh, Pol Pot, Hitler, Huey Long, uh, a couple of sports people whose names I'll, I'll leave out of it, who had the same attitude towards things. Uh, they, they cannot, you know, to, for, for him to admit to himself that he lost and to, to acknowledge it publicly, uh, I really think he would then melt like the witch in the Wizard of Oz. And I, I, I almost mean that literally. Now, now this there's is... No way, there's, no way, there's no way around it. He will, he will kill others or have others killed now, admitting that he, he lost. And so if he does not get the nomination, then hopefully he would proceed with a third party, party run and, and, and ruin things for whoever went up against him um, from the Republican side. But uh, I, I do think he will get the nomination. And, and you know, the, that oft-attributed quote to many non-named senators, like, you know, we, we have to come up with a better non-named Republican senators. We have to come up with a better strategy than waiting for this guy to die. I, I don't know what the better strategy is. One of the great flaws in my career is that I traditionally was the person who wound up having the conversation um, about the craziest stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're in that moment where you just kind of look to the right, you look to the left, and you know, someone better, you know, better say something here. And what I what I'm astonished by with Donald Trump is that is that nobody, no, and I'm nobody, yeah. look looked at him and and to the right, to the left, and and said, "You fucking lost. Yeah, you lost. Yeah, you lost. More people voted for the other guy." Well, and, and 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 that there's not anybody, right? That 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 would do that, and in the whole of the party, the whole of the party, one in a two-party system, mm 